Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall shall defend our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, making sure that we are filled with the Spirit and ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to gather together this morning to study your word, to fellowship around the truth of your word, that we may have a greater appreciation for all that you have done for us, uh, all that you have provided for us in our salvation, all that you have given us in our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this nation, for the freedoms that we have, for the wisdom of the founding fathers who provided us with such an excellent uh, foundation such a superb rule of law. Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve and protect this nation, give wisdom and guidance to our president. There are so many forces, both seen and unseen, that are rallied against him. Father, we pray that you might protect him, give him strength, give him courage, uh, that he uh, would not grow weary in the struggle. Father, we continue to pray that you would give right information to our intelligence services, they can seek out and destroy those who would do us harm. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might do that which is most important, and that is to keep steadfast in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to keep us strong, that we may teach the word, that people would respond to the word, and that we might continue in our own spiritual life, to keep our priorities straight and focus on our own spiritual advance. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand them, that we would be challenged by the teaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to a key passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, and these two verses are foundational to everything else that is said in this chapter because it focuses on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit at salvation and what he has done in relationship to forming the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 and 14. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For 
By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now this verse, these two verses lay the foundation of Paul's argument here on the importance of spiritual gifts, both the verses that precede this and the verses that follow. We have we began this study looking at the importance of spiritual gifts as Paul outlines them and introduces them in the first three verses. There he made it clear that it was something distinct from pagan rituals and pagan ideas of certain practices. In all pagan religions, you have miracle workers, you have healers, you have those who speak in tongues. There are ecstatic groups within almost every world religion. Among the uh, among the Muslims, you have the whirling dervishes, and they have, that's their branch of what we might call charismatic religion. You have uh, charismatic religion among the Hindus and tongue speakers among the Hindus. And almost every world religion has some kind of branch that's into hyper-emotionalism and some kind of mysticism and ecstatic utterance. So Paul makes it clear that uh, what takes place by the Spirit of God is not that which was associated with the uh, idols. Then in verses 4 through 11, he emphasizes uh, one aspect of the spiritual gifts, and the emphasis there is on the differences, the diversities. And three verses, verses 4 through 6, emphasizes the differences. And here we see the emphasis on the individual. There are different gifts, different ministries, and different activities, yet they are all uh, united by the same Spirit, same Lord, same God. Then in verses 7 through 11, last time we looked at these different gifts, and these are all uh, nine uh, temporary gifts. Then in verses 12 and 13, he's going to <clears throat> show the foundation for the unity. See, we've looked at the differences and the diversity. Now we're going to shift to looking at the unity of the body, that it is one body. Now, the best analogy is to think in terms of a team. And a team emphasizes not just the individual talents of each player on the team, if it, let's say a sports team, basketball team, football team, baseball team, relies upon the distinct talents of each individual player. But when the emphasis is just on all of the individuals and you lose sight of their working together as a harmonious whole, then their performance breaks down. So you also have to emphasize the unity aspect, the oneness aspect of that team. The same thing is true for the body of Christ. It's a team, not just the overall universal body of Christ, but also the body of Christ as it's represented in its local manifestation in each local church. This is one reason why it's important to be associated in a local church. Now, not every local church may be able to have a pastor. Sometimes you have, and we've seen this even in our study of Second John and Third John, where there's local churches that are pastored in absentia by a John who refers to himself as the elder. This is not seen as the normal normal thing, but it does happen at times, and especially today with technology being what it is, there may be local congregations that are uh, pastored in absentia by a pastor who is in another area and has uh, some sort of ministry through 
tapes or through videotapes or audio video, whatever it might be. This is a much more efficient way than what you had in many other circumstances. For example, on the on the frontier in America back during the uh, even the 18th century and 19th century, there were often small congregations that could not afford to have a local pastor. And so they were, there might be three or four churches in a in an area, and they would be pastored by an itinerant minister, and he might come in on a Sunday Saturday night in one location and have services on a Saturday night, then ride somewhere else, and the next day have services there, and then ride somewhere else, and then on Sunday night have services there. Now, for some reason today, we we fail to appreciate the fact that that kind of thing has been going on for throughout the centuries in the church age. Congregations can't always have a, a pastor, but that doesn't mean that believers shouldn't congregate as believers and function as a local body. That's the emphasis, is there should be a local church and local assembly, and in, in every local church there are believers with different spiritual gifts, and they are given for the benefit of that local body. So there's an emphasis not just on the spiritual gifts and the individual gifts, but also on that unity and the function of that local body as a team. And you see the emphasis on this team aspect by the use of the word one. You ought to circle the word one in these two verses. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. And then in verse 14 you have, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. So that seven uses of the word one, what do you think the emphasis is there? One of the laws of Bible study is uh, is repetition and to observe whether or not the author of Scripture repeats something. And usually it's not quite this obvious, but when you have the word one mentioned seven times in three verses, then it ought to get your attention that the emphasis is on that team nature for a local church, that we're a team. It's not just a bunch of individual believers who come to church and take in the Word, fill out their doctrinal notebooks, and then head home without any real interaction with each other. There, It's not just the emphasis on the individual, but also on that team, team nature to the local church. In America, we live in a culture that has emphasized rugged individualism, and that's part of the human viewpoint trend of our culture. Other cultures don't emphasize that. But in the U- U.S., because of our the frontier background and, the se- and uh, colonial times and in the 19th century, there's a tremendous emphasis on what each individual can do and each individual going it alone and doing what they can do alone. But that is not what the picture of the Scripture. While it's important that you and only you can live your spiritual life, and your spiritual life is not dependent upon any other believer. Nevertheless, you have been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of using that to minister and serve to the congregation as a whole to other believers. By that, I don't mean that you can't serve and minister in your spiritual gift to an unbeliever or to people who aren't members of this congregation, but that's secondary. The purpose for that gift is primarily for service in the local church. So in verse 12, 
Paul comes back to emphasizing the unity aspect of the body. For as the body is one, and what does he mean by body? He refers to the body of Christ, which is the church. So when we talk about church in the scripture, the Greek word ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia, which means assembly, congregation, and came to be applied to the church as a technical term. But there are places both in the Gospels and in Acts where ecclesia does not refer to the church, but here it does. And the body of Christ is one. Therefore, we have the in the doctrine of the church... We speak of the universal church, and the universal church is made up of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether they're alive or dead. It doesn't matter whether they are uh, in the United States or Canada or Germany or Asia. It is a universal church is made up of every single believer in the church age, alive and dead. That is the universal body of Christ. And then there is the doctrine of the local church, and that is the manifestation of the body, the universal body of Christ in a local assembly. Now, sometimes it's not always possible, or sometimes it's not possible for a believer to be involved in a local church our local assembly. I emphasize that, but there are many places in this country where it's not possible. I've been involved sometimes on email interchanges with people who've heard me teach, and they say, Pastor, I'm really trying to find a local church, but I live in, they name some town, and maybe in the, usually in the northwest or northeast, and it's a small town, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people, and they say, I've tried this church, and I've tried that church, and there's no church that even believes in the virgin birth of the resurrection of Christ. So what do I do? I mean, I'd like my kids to grow up in church. What do I do? Well, there's nothing you can do. So you're stuck going it alone with a tape recorder or something like that, listening over the Internet, and that's the best you can do. Then on the other hand, I've heard of folks who who they are isolationist in their and uh, not real social in their personality, and they would rather stay at home and watch TV, watch a video, listen to a tape, rather than go five miles down the road to a church where they do have at least basic doctrine is solid, and, and they find some little thing they don't like. Now, there are some big things you may not like, and I can understand that, but they find some little thing they don't like, like the pastor's personality, or there's one little secondary doctrine that isn't quite... Uh, in line with what they think, and so they use that as an excuse not to be involved in a local church. Now, those are the kinds of folks that I like to beat over the head with the word every now and then, because it's it's that's not the biblical idea. But then again, there are many people in many places, and sometimes even in urban areas in this country, it is getting harder and harder and harder to find a church that has both a biblical practice and sound doctrine. In fact, I have, uh, when I was out in Southern California, and there are a lot of solid churches in Southern California, but they're spread out. 
and I was talking with a good friend of mine, and his church has just been so inundated with uh, hyper-Calvinism and Reformed theology that he's on the verge of uh, leaving that and beginning to look around, but there can't seem to be anything close by. And if you do find something that, that it just begins to approximate uh, solid truth, then you end up with some pastor who's brought in a worship team and, and they're into some form of church growth philosophy or they're into some kind of, of uh, uh, contemporary praise and worship that is uh, very difficult for anybody who's doctrinally oriented to even stomach. So it's not easy, even in a, a, a urban area, to uh, find some some church where you can have have a ministry. Yet, nevertheless, I'm always amazed by p- people who give reports that they found some small church in, in their area where they're able to do that. So we're to be involved in a local church as part of the body of Christ. Now, in verse 12, when it talks about the body, that is talking about the body of Christ, not his physical human body, but it is used metaphorically to refer to the entire team of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, both living and dead, throughout the church age. So the body is one. There is a unity there, and it has many members. This is the idea that we discussed several classes ago on unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. And when we went through this doctrine... We saw that this has its root in the Trinity, that in the Trinity you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that the Father uh, is not the Son, but He is equal in essence to the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, but He is equal in essence to the Holy Spirit, but they are not the same person. So you have a unity in that God is one, and when the Old Testament and uh, Deuteronomy 4, 6, called the Shema, where the Jews were told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It, the word there for one, Echad, has the idea of a unity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have an essential unity, and yet they also have three persons. This is in complete harmony and balance. That means you have equal weight to both the team and the individuals on the team. And we could discuss several of the implications of that. So we read this, that for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So we have a contrast. Explanation on the first clause, for as the body is one and has many members, contrast, but all the members, that is each individual of that one body, are one body. Now he adds the phrase being many to reemphasize their individual distinctiveness. But then he emphasizes in the phrase following the verb, they are one body. So also is Christ. Christ is one body. So you have this balance between the individuals and between the unity of the body. Now, verse 13 is going to explain the mechanics of how that happens. And that is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is something that we are very familiar with, but we'll go through it one more time in detail to make sure we really have a grasp of this important doctrine. It is related to the doctrine of positional truth. Doctrine of positional truth, we chart this way. At the instant of salvation, two things happen to you, and these two arenas, really, two arenas of of, of things happen to you, and these are non-experiential realities. You don't know these happen. They happen simultaneously. They happen instantly. God performs all of these for you, the believer, at the instant of salvation. On the left side of the chart, we have our eternal realities, and that is the focus of positional truth. These are the eternal realities, and positional truth has to do with our standing in relationship to Jesus Christ. We are said to be in Christ. In the Greek, in Christo, in plus the the dative, in a locative sense, we are in Christ. We are identified with him, as we'll see, and as we study the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are placed in him, and this is where the body of Christ is formed. And the action that performs that, that places us in Christ, is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So it is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit that affects positional truth. So let's look at the doctrine of positional truth by way of review. We've gone over this before, but it's been some time, and we'll cover it one more time. Definition, positional truth is a term that is equivalent to positional sanctification. These terms are very similar, and they indicate the fact that at the instant of salvation, when we are put in Christ, we are completely set apart to the service of God. We are positionally sanctified, and that means at that instant you become a sanctified one or a saint. You don't have to go through some sort of ritualistic uh, practice in order to become a saint. You are one at the instant of salvation. And this occurs only in relationship to church-age believers. You never had positional truth prior to the church age. So positional truth focuses on the uniting of the believer, the uniting of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Point number two, the mechanics of how spiritual truth is accomplished, is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. It is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And the definition of that is that Christ uses the Holy Spirit to effect our union with himself. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to effect our union with Christ, and this is seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 number of other passages, and we're going to come back and do a detailed study of that before we're done this morning. Well, understand why I phrase it that way. It's a very technical definition and a little different from what you may have heard for many years. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to affect our union with Christ. Third, positional truth guarantees the believer's eternal security. Because we are in Christ, we have a secure salvation. That union is permanent. It cannot be severed. You had nothing to do with forming that union. That you, you, that union occurred as a result of salvation, which was through faith. The only thing that you did was that you believed 
the gospel. But that belief is not the cause of the gospel. It is the means of appropriating eternal life. Now, this is something that is so important, so foundational, and so much under attack today. In fact, it's gotten to a point where I hardly have a week go by that somebody isn't emailing me about the hyper-Calvinistic doctrine that faith is a gift and that you can't do anything to save yourself. Therefore, God has to give you the gift of faith. Well, what happens there is that faith is viewed in that context as something that has merit or value in and of itself. Now, you have two options in understanding faith. Faith can have value or merit in and of itself, or it can be non-meritorious. Now, the way the Calvinist takes it is that faith in and of itself is meritorious, so he says that you can have a non-saving faith in Christ. We've studied that and the details of this many times, but it comes up so much and is such a hot issue today that we have to keep going over this and over this again to make sure you don't fall prey to this kind of thinking. Calvinism teaches that you can have a non-saving faith in Christ. This is inherent to Reformed theology and to lordship salvation. Therefore, and in that idea, this makes faith meritorious. Therefore, at salvation, you have to be given faith from God. Faith is viewed as the gift in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift. And what the Calvinist tries to do is take that indefinite third-person singular pronoun, it, or that neuter in uh, in, neuter singular pronoun, and make it refer back to faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and faith is the gift. But faith in Greek is a feminine singular noun. And the rule of grammar is that a pronoun must agree in gender with the noun it refers to. Therefore, a neuter pronoun cannot refer to a feminine noun. Furthermore, we read in that passage, For by grace you have been saved, and grace is the Greek noun charis, and charis is also a feminine noun. Therefore, the it cannot refer to charis. And it's a rule of grammar in Greek, that when you have an entire clause or you have a compound idea or an abstract idea, that that whole idea is referred to by the by the a neuter pronoun. And so the main idea is, for by grace you have been saved. That goes back to verse 4 in Ephesians 2, where Paul brings it in at that point in sort of an exclamation, for by grace you have been saved. And he picks that idea up again in verse 8. And faith is sort of a, through faith is a secondary idea in the grammar. The it refers to the, for by grace you have been saved. It's a by grace salvation. That is the gift of God. And this is so misunderstood. And what that emphasizes is that faith is non-meritorious. It's not faith that has value. It is the cross 
the object of faith that has value. So uh, we are not saved because of anything we do. Furthermore, in Ephesians 2.89, it is for by grace through faith. Now that's another important phrase. Let me run forward here. Through faith. Now in this passage, we have the preposition dia, D-I-A, and dia can either take a noun, either governs a noun in the genitive or it will govern a noun in the accusative. When that noun that follows the preposition is in the accusative case, then it means because. When it is in the genitive case, it has the idea of through. And through indicates a secondary means. A secondary means. Because indicates the ultimate causation for something. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't have dia plus the accusative. It has dia plus the genitive of pistis. Which means that we are saved through faith, not because of faith. If faith were meritorious, then we would have an accusative case there because... But it's not that way. It means you're saved through faith. The cause of salvation is located in the grace of God and his eternal plan of salvation and Christ's work on the cross. It is not in what you do. It is not even in in, in faith. So faith as non-meritorious cannot be considered a work. It's not something you do in the sense of something that is meritorious, that gains God's approbation, gains God's favor. And my point here is you don't do anything to get saved. Jesus did it all. Therefore, since you don't do anything to get saved, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. So positional truth guarantees the believer's eternal security. Romans 8, 38, and 39. Fourth point, positional truth belongs to all categories of believers. Whether you are a carnal believer, a spiritual believer, adult believer, immature believer, a reversionist, whatever your status, positional truth applies to every single believer. It does not, it is not determined by anything you do. It is a reality that you receive at the instant of salvation. Fifth, positional truth is what qualifies the believer to live with God forever. Because to live for God forever, you must have your sins paid for, and you must possess perfect righteousness and eternal life. And all of that takes place at the instant of salvation. You are, you receive the imputed righteousness of God, and you receive eternal life. So positional truth qualifies the believer to live with God forever. Sixth, positional truth creates a new creature in Christ. As part of positional truth, there's regeneration. So you are regenerated. You become a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, in the Old Testament, believers were regenerated, but they weren't in Christ. In the Church age, you're regenerated and you become a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. New things have come. Point number seven, the positional truth is the basis for spiritual growth. It's the basis of spiritual growth because you are now indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, which is the foundation for the filling by means of the Holy Spirit which is the means of sanctification. But the foundation is the indwelling 
uh, by God the Holy Spirit. So that positional truth is the basis for spiritual growth and producing divine good, Ephesians 2.10. Furthermore, point number eight, positional truth is the basis for grace blessing. Because you are in Christ, God is able to bestow his blessings on you. It's not because of who you are, what you've done. It's because of what Christ has done on the cross, because you now possess his perfect righteousness. God blesses you because of what you, uh, because of your possession of, of Christ's righteousness, not what you have done. Point number eight, excuse me, that was point number eight, positional truth is for grace blessing. Point number nine, point number nine, what God has done for us in positional truth, there's many aspects to this. What the Father has done for us in positional truth is itemized in Romans eight twenty nine to 30. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, he will glorify us, and then he disciplines us in Hebrews 12, 5 through 9. That's all part of what God the Father does for us in a positional truth. He foreknew us. This isn't some sort of fatalism. It involves God's purpose for our life. It is in his foreknowledge that he uh, determines what happens in history, what actually happens in history. Foreknowledge is a subcategory of his omniscience where God knows all of the knowable. And for knowledge, God has a plan and purpose for your life. He predestined us. That is a future destiny. Predestined just means that God determines a destiny ahead of time. He has set up a destiny in eternity future and with Jesus Christ, and that has been predetermined. Our destiny is in heaven with Jesus Christ. He called us at the instant of salvation. This has to do with efficacious grace and God uh, using the Holy Spirit to uh, help us understand the gospel. At salvation. He justified us by imputing his perfect righteousness to us, and on that basis we are declared just and righteous. He will glorify us in the future when we have a resurrection body absent the sin nature and we are face to face with him in heaven. And during time he disciplines us, Hebrews twelve, five through nine. With regard to the ministry of God the Son, God the Son, we know that Christ's righteousness is the tested righteousness, that is, the righteousness he had in his humanity, is the tested righteousness which is imputed to us. That is ours, uh, which we can never lose. It means there's an end to the old life and a beginning to the new life. So in terms of what the Son does, we have his righteousness. Second, he directs his church, Ephesians 1, to 23. He's the head of the church. He is the commander of the body. He is the command post. Ephesians 1, to 23. He intercedes for us in heaven, Romans 8, 34. He continuously intercedes for us with God the Father. Because Christ is our intercessor, we do not pray to him. We pray to God the Father just as he prays to God the Father. Fourth, Christ provides eternal life for us. Not just It's not just an unending life, it is a qualitative life. Too often we think of eternal life as just life that never ends, but the unbeliever has a life that never ends, but it's not a qualitative life. It's a life in the lake of fire. Uh, 
the Holy Spirit's role in relation to positional truth. There is regeneration where he regenerates us and he creates and simultaneously imparts to us a human spirit at the instant of salvation, Titus 3.5. God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Uh, he is part of the ministry of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is the means that Jesus Christ uses to effect the union with himself. He gives us spiritual gifts. He leads us. If you are a son of God, Paul says in Romans 8, then you are led by the Holy Spirit. And we are also uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we've seen already. Point number eight, the role of Father, Son, and Holy, excuse me, point number nine, the role of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in positional truth. Point number ten, because we are in union with Christ, we share nine things. There are nine things we share with Christ. The first is we share His eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, and 12. Second, we share his perfect righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Third, we share his election, Ephesians 1.4. I know I'm going fast. Some of you already have this. Um, I'll, let me go over it again. We share his eternal life. It is not our life that gets us in heaven. We can live in heaven with God because we possess his eternal life, 1 John 5.11 and 12. We have his perfect righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be manifest in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We share his election. We are chosen in him. Ephesians 1.4 We are chosen in him. We share his destiny. We share his destiny. Ephesians 1.5 We have been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. We share his destiny. We share his sonship, 2 Timothy 2.1. We share his sanctification, point number 6, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Share his sanctifications, 1 Corinthians 1.2. We share his priesthood. Uh, he is a royal high priest, and we are all royal priests Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. So part of being identified with Christ identifies us with his royal high priesthood so that our individual priesthood is part of positional truth. And then we share his royalty. We're members of the royal family of God. 2 Peter 1, 11. 2 Peter 1, 11. So because we're in union with Christ, we share eight things, eternal life, perfect righteousness, election, destiny, sonship, sanctification, priesthood, and royalty. Now remember point number 11, our final point, that positional truth is not experience. It's not emotion. It's not ecstatics. You don't feel anything when you're identified with Christ. Second, it's not progressive. It doesn't advance. You don't become progressively sanctified in positional truth. That's a separate doctrine. If you confuse the two, then you end up in Roman Catholic theology. 
See, that's what happens in Roman Catholic theology is that you only have progressive sanctification. There's no positional sanctification. Therefore, salvation becomes identified with progressive salvation. And if you're not advancing, then you don't know that you're getting saved. In other words, you gain salvation incrementally through the sacraments, and you never know when you have enough grace. The, that was one of the benefits of, of the Reformation, is recovering the doctrine that justification is by faith alone. It's instantaneous at salvation when we are identified with Christ and we are positionally sanctified, and there is a distinction between what happens at salvation and progressive sanctification, so that you may not, as a believer, grow experientially because you just are negative to doctrine and you don't care, you're more concerned with the details of life, but that doesn't mean you weren't saved to begin with. You can be saved and live just like an unbeliever, and if you're saved, you'll probably be worse than an unbeliever. Also, in terms of what positional truth is not, it is not indicated by speaking in tongues. It has nothing to do with positional truth. There are no spiritual gifts and manifestation of spiritual gifts that are necessary to indicate positional truth. Positional truth is not related to the practice of any spiritual gift. You receive a spiritual gift at salvation, but that is not the sign of positional truth. Okay, now let's look at verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now this verse is a difficult verse to really understand in the Greek because of its relationship to the other verses that talk about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it's important to understand it in terms of certain amount of, of uh, uh, distinctions made in the Greek. Certain amount of distinctions made in the Greek. And there I have added them on the screen for you. I want you to pay attention to these little notes. Starts off for by one spirit, and this is the, this is the Greek phrase, in, that is the preposition in, pneumati. That's the dative form of the noun pneuma. So it's very important. It's not just a dative. So you could express means by just using the dative, um, dative case. But when you put the preposition in, that strengthens the idea that this is instrumentality. Instrumentality. It is by means of something. Now, in the early 20th century, in the doctrines of the Holy Spirit, the liberal theology assaulted Christianity on a, on a part of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and that was in the arena of his independent personality, his independent personality. And so there was a tremendous battle waged at the end of the 19th century and into the middle of the 20th century with liberal theology as to whether or not the Holy Spirit was just 
uh, an impersonal force of God or merely a manifestation of God or whether the Holy Spirit had a distinct, unique uh, personhood. And we have studied that in the past, that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. He has independent will in passages, and we saw that in our own passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 11, that it is by one and the same Spirit, uh, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, to, uh, distributing to each individual as he wills. And that is an aspect of personality, that he is, even though the uh, Greek noun pneuma is a neuter noun, the Holy Spirit is referred to in numerous passages by a uh, masculine pronoun. And that violates the rules of grammar, but it indicates that it's not talking about a an impersonal force, but a person. So the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. And uh, what happened there is that conservatives got a little confused with some grammar terms. And I'm probably going to confuse you with some grammar terms this morning. And one of these terms was personal agency. And the other term is impersonal means. Now, these are grammar terms, and that, that, that idea got lost. And the way this was traditionally taught was if you have a phrase, a, a, a dative phrase, uh, and, and, it's, and it's means or agency, if the noun in the dative is, a, is an individual or a person, then you select this option. It's personal agency because it's a person. If it's an, in, if it's an impersonal object, then you select this category and it's impersonal means. So the conclusion was, since we're fighting a battle over the personhood of the Holy Spirit, we can't say that's impersonal means because that would indicate that the Holy Spirit may not be a person. Well, now you've confused a real category of personhood with a grammatic, with grammatical nomenclature of personal agency and impersonal means. Now, let me, let me explain the difference here. The agent of an action in the concept of personal agency, the agent of an action is the same person who performs the action. It's the same person who performs the action. Now, grammatically, that would be if you have an active voice verb, then when the agent who performs the action would be the subject of the sentence. Take a sentence like John hit the ball. Hit is an active voice verb, therefore the subject performs the action. John performs the action. So John is the agent of hitting. Okay? So agent referred to the one who performed the action, but if you reversed it and made it a passive voice, the ball was hit by John, where the subject of the verb is now the ball, but the verb is in the passive voice so that the, the, the subject receives the action of the verb, then when you shift over to a passive the agent is no longer the subject of the verb. The a- agent is now re- now is the object. So in the sentence, the ball was hit 
by John, the agent or the performer of the action is now indicated by th- in English wh- by this clause, by John. The ball is the grammatical subject of the sentence. By John, it d- indicates the agent or the one who performs the action of a passive verb. Now, this is why things start getting a little bit confusing. So we're going to back away from grammar for a minute so your little brain cells can modulate on that for a while, and then we'll come back to it. Okay, let's get a couple of points on the baptism of the Holy Spirit before we go forward. First of all, first point, baptism of the Holy Spirit did not occur in the Old Testament. You never have any reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the, New, in the Old Testament. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in this passage, has to do with being identified with Christ. Therefore, there was no baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It is unique to the church age. Second point. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was first prophesied by John the Baptist at the inception of Jesus' ministry. The baptism by the Holy Spirit was first prophesied by John the Baptist at the inception of Christ's ministry and just prior to the beginning of his ministry. So it's prophesied by John the Baptist at the at the uh uh, just prior to the inception of Christ's ministry, and then Christ himself refers to it in Acts 1-5. In the Gospels and, and Acts 1-5, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is a future event. It's not past. It hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it wasn't in the Old Testament, and it wasn't a reality in the Gospels. Up to Acts 1-5, it's still future. Now, let's look at some of these passages. Matthew 3.11. Now, I want you to remember something. Key, the key idea here is to remember, well, the red doesn't show up on the screen very well, but the key is to remember this little phrase, in numity, that you see in verse 1 Corinthians 12.13. That's right after spirit, if you can't see that very well up on the overhead. It's right after spirit, in numity. Now, look at that. You have the same phrase used in the last line in Matthew 3.11, you have the same phrase used, so keep your eye on that phrase. Now, in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist is speaking, and he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, let's just stop there. That gives you all of the elements. This is almost like a formula. You have to plug in the different details. The verb is baptize. It's a present active indicative, and active voice means that the subject performs the action of the verb. So in uh, in the verb, I baptize, John the Baptist is the one who performs the action of the verb. Now let's go back and look at this slide. When we were talking about agent and subject a minute ago, we said that when the active voice verb is used, then the subject the one who performs the action, is also referred to as the agent. Okay? So when John says, I baptize you, I is the subject, and that means that John the Baptist, in that phrase, I baptize you, John is the agent of baptism. 
Now, he says, I baptize you with water, and he uses that preposition in plus the dative case of hudor, indicating the means by which he accomplishes baptism. Now, we know that the meaning of baptism, the literal meaning, is to dip, plunge, or immerse, and its significance was identification, and it was used as sort of an initiation ritual or rite in many different circumstances in the ancient world, and it was used, for example, to initiate a new recruit into the army. After he finished his boot camp, he would take his spear and he would plunge it or immerse it into a bucket of pig's blood and that was to identify his spear with blood. He was now uh, going to be a soldier and that spear was going to be used to take the life of the enemy. So the the pig's blood would be, if you baptize with pig's blood, that's the means of identification. So in John's baptism, it was a wet baptism. Remember, there are dry baptisms and wet baptisms. And John's baptism was a wet baptism. He baptized or identified the individual by means of water. And then you have another clause for repentance. And here in Greek you have a preposition ace. Now you have to, these are the three elements you have to focus on. What's the voice of the verb, active or passive? What is, where's the end clause? That indicates the means, the instrument used to perform the baptism, the identification. And where is the ace clause? The ace indicates the new state. If you're being initiated into something, it's that new state that you're being initiated into that is indicated by the ace clause. So the way this should be translated is John saying, I baptize you by means of water uh, into repentance. And then there's a contrast indicating a parallelism. It says, but he who is coming after me, now who's that? That's Jesus. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, here you have the same uh, verb, baptizo. Now it's in the future tense, future active indicative. It's active voice. So who performs the action of the verb? He, Jesus. So in the parallel, what we see is that Jesus is the subject of the active voice verb, so he's also the agent of the verb. He is the agent of the action of baptism. He is the one who performs the baptism. Now, listen, this is where it gets tricky. This is why grammar is so important. This is why when you go back and you read the records in Massachusetts, colony in the 1690s, the town with the lowest literacy rate had a literacy rate of about 97% because they understood that if you're going to understand anything about life at all, you better understand the Bible, and to understand it, you have to teach your kids how to read and write, and so their motivation was, was spiritual. It didn't have to do with making money. See, once you shift to a, to a purely pragmatic uh, mercantile motivation for education, it's, it's self-destructive because in the long run, it's not enough. Money doesn't motivate a lot of people. Now, that may motivate some of you, and you may think that's awful weird, but motiv- money doesn't motivate people. But your eternal life motivates people. What's going to happen in eternity when that's real and you understand that there's a real lake of fire and that there's a real judgment seat of Christ, now there's motivation for you. So they understood grammar. 
most of us don't ever understand grammar, so we can't even read and understand what we read because you have to understand grammar to be able to, under, to, be able to uh, decipher complex sentences. Okay, my point is that if Jesus is the subject of the active voice verb, then if we take the sentence, now watch this, if we take the sentence, Jesus will baptize by the Holy Spirit, where we have an active voice verb, will baptize, Jesus is the subject or the agent. If we transfer that to a passive verb, we indicate that um, somebody, which is not mentioned, X, will be baptized. There we transfer it to a passive verb, will be baptized. And how do we express the agent now? Well, in English, we express the agent with that preposition by, by Jesus. Now, do you see the problem? See, up here, Jesus will baptize by the Holy Spirit. That's what John said. But down here, when you transfer that into a passive form, and you say X or the individual believer will be baptized by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, you hear the redundancy? See, that's where you get into confusion. In English, we will express the agent or the performer of the action in a passive voice verb with the preposition by. But that is also the same preposition that we use in English to express the means used to accomplish the action of the verb. Now you have a con- the, the confusion. And what this led to was the fact that that among non-charismatics, they were inadvertently talking about two different baptisms. See, this was a problem in charismatics because they, they recognized the difference and they said, well, okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 clearly takes place at salvation, so you have a baptism, uh, you know, by the Spirit that happens to everybody at salvation, but you get a second one that's done by Jesus in the Gospels, and that's the one that comes after salvation. So in traditional Pentecostal theology, they came up with two different baptisms. Well, the answer from most non-charismatics, that's us, was that they're the same baptism, but there's only one baptism, and the way it was normally taught was that was that the Spirit is the one who performs the baptism. You'll get baptized by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, this is how you'll hear you always heard it expressed, the Holy Spirit identifies you with Christ. Now, do you see the problem? In that sentence, the Holy Spirit identifies you with Christ. The Holy Spirit is now the subject of the verb and the agent. Well, that fit because if you're going to call that personal agency, you've confused a grammar term with a reality. And that's where you ended up with inadvertently in a non-charismatic position reaffirming two baptisms. But they're not. There's only one baptism, and that's what I'm showing you this morning in this grammar. Okay, Acts 1.5. Jesus says the same thing. Uh, Same verbiage. For John baptized, it's an active voice verb. John performs the action. 
So therefore, he's the agent performing the action of the verb. John baptized with water in hudity. Notice it's formulaic. It's in plus the dative. But you will be baptized. Notice it's a, excuse me, that's a passive there. Missed the nomenclature. Should be you will be baptized. That's future passive indicative. You you receive the action of the verb, that's the subject of the verb, will be baptized as a future passive with the Holy Spirit in numity, by means of the Holy Spirit. So once again, the the Holy Spirit in both the Matthew passage and the John and the Acts passage, in both Acts one five and Matthew three eleven, it's the Holy Spirit who express whose is the means. You have a subject. Then let's go to another Baptism passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 2, one we've studied already. And all were baptized. Now, what's the voice of that verb, were baptized? It's passive. That means the subject receives the action of the verb. The subject is all. It's talking about all the Jews at the time of the Exodus. All the Jews were baptized, what, into Moses. See, Acts 1, 5 didn't have an ace clause. But 1 Corinthians 10.2 has that state, into Moses, just as John baptized them into repentance. So all were baptized into Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. So the end clause, the end plus the dative, the instrumental dative, is by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. Okay, let's summarize this. If you have a sentence, John hit the ball with the bat. Let's say we might say it more colloquially, John hit the ball by means of the bat. Okay, by the bat. Then we have John as the subject. He hit the ball. Hit is the verb. The ball is the object of the verb. And the instrument used to hit the ball is the bat, by means of the bat. When we convert that to a passive verb form, then we read, the ball was hit by John, the ball was hit by John, uh, the ball with or by the bat. It becomes very confusing, very difficult for us to, to articulate that in English. He really, the ball was hit by John using the bat. That's how we would express it. Now, the clarification comes this way in Greek. When you shift something from an active voice to a passive voice, to express the subject, the agent, the one who performs the action, you use the Greek preposition hupa or dia. Hupa or dia, not in. See, in English, we get in this trap, this illustration I put on the overhead. Jesus will baptize by the Holy Spirit. You convert that to a passive form. Jesus will, or the uh, believer, will be baptized by Jesus, by the Spirit. But in Greek... To distinguish that, the agent or the one who performs the action is going to be expressed by the preposition hupa or dia. And then the means is still expressed by that in, in, that in clause. What does all that mean? That means that the, the phrase, by the Spirit, in verse 13, should be understood not as indicating the one who performs the action or the agent of the action, 
but is indicating still, as it is in Matthew 3.11 and Acts 1.5, still indicating the means of the action. For, and it should be translated, rendered, we were all baptized by means of one spirit. It doesn't mention the one who performs the action. We know that from Matthew 3.11. Jesus Christ is the one who performs the action. He's the agent. He's the one who's the subject of the verb. He's the one who performs the action of baptism. And he does it by using God the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, let's just summarize this by getting a picture in our minds. And I want, you, I want to borrow the imagery from Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the what? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So washing there brings in this whole water imagery of washing and cleansing. Now, what John did, John the Baptist, he would take the individual and he would use water to symbolize cleansing and identification, and he would plunge them into the water, and he would bring them out into a new state of repentance. Now, what happens in the parallelism, he said Jesus is going to come along, and instead of using water to put the believer into a new state, he's going to use the Holy Spirit to put the believer into a new state. So Jesus is going to take the take the believer, as it were, and using the Holy Spirit, he's going to plunge the believer into the Holy Spirit, and that affects washing and regeneration and all the other spirit-related ministries, and he identifies the believer with himself. Now, we're going to have to come back and cover that next time uh, in terms of Romans 6 and what, why we're identified with Christ in terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. But the imagery here is of Jesus performing the action, using the Holy Spirit to bring about identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. And what this does, it's a technical piece of exegesis we've had to cover this morning, but what it does is it shows that you don't have two different performers of action. You don't have Jesus doing it in, in the Gospels and the Holy Spirit doing it in 1 Corinthians, and it's illegitimate to say, well, Jesus... Jesus uh, is the ultimate one who does it, and, he, and the Holy Spirit is the immediate performer of the action. Uh, some people have tried that. That doesn't work grammatically. The only thing that works is to indicate, is to be consistent, that it's the Holy Spirit who is the means of affecting this identification. So technically, we need to refer to it, as we've done with other similar clauses, as the baptism by means of the Spirit. We're filled by means of the Spirit. We walk by means of the Spirit, and we are baptized by means of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who is the means of affecting all of these different elements in the Christian life. Okay, we'll review a lot of this next time and, and go on beyond this, but we have to get clear on this. It's such a foundational argument in uh, understanding uh, the, the whole problem with the charismatic movement and tongues and everything else, and so we're getting this set up before we get into the big tongues passage in the latter part of, verse, uh, latter part of chapter 13 and chapter 14 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, for the clarification, for understanding all that you have done for us in positional truth and all that you have done for us through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that you would uh, they would take this time to make that sure and certain. If you're here this morning and you have no idea about your salvation, you can be saved simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to make a commitment. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to make a bargain with God, join a church, or get involved with any other kind of religious activity. All you need to do in the privacy of your own soul is simply uh, express your faith, your trust, your exclusive reliance upon Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your salvation. At that instant you are saved, you are the benefit of positional truth, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you have an eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, we just thank you for all that you do for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.